Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness, and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labour working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So we have been working our way through Paul's list of examples to illustrate a great overriding principle, a great fundamental principle. And that principle is that a Christian should live differently. Our lives are to be different from the society, the pagan society that is all around us. We are to live different lives in that our speech will be different and our associations will be different and our actions will be different. We'll mark us out, we will stand out in this world as being different. And that will include, says Paul in verse 25, being truthful, telling the truth, not telling lies. For lying is a residual sin that dwells within our hearts and causes problems. Sinful. And then we're told, and we learned this last week, that Christians are not only to be truthful, they are to be angry. You might think that's the opposite of Christianity. But we have a duty upon us to be angry with what God is angry with. So we are angry and we do not sin. And we looked at that and we explored the subject of Christian anger and how we weren't to let it fester in our hearts and not to let the sun go down upon our wrath. So we're to be truthful and we're to be angry at the things 
that anger God at sin. And we're to be honest. That's the verse that we want to look at this evening, verse 28. Where Paul says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Paul's dealing with the subject of theft, or to be more accurate, how we are to live our lives in such a way that we are honest in our dealings. So let's look at this first for a few minutes this evening. Paul says, let him that stole steal no more. Now the situation in Ephesus where these Christians were living was that theft was a way of life. It was similar to all other Greek cities. It was a way of life for many of the citizens. There were rich pickings all around them. Um, I don't want to encourage you to read William Barclay's commentaries. He is, as you know, a liberal. But he does have some interesting background. And in his commentary, he points out that one of the main reasons for this theft being so prevalent in Greek cities was the public sanitation system because the houses didn't have bathrooms, obviously, in those days. And so you had to go along to the public baths to maintain a reasonable standard of hygiene. And depending on your status in society, you'd be going there maybe once a week. If you were really well off, maybe once a day. If you were a slave, you might never go at all. Uh, That's nothing unusual. Do remember, please, that that was the case in the city of Belfast right up until about 100 years ago, maybe in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. People would have had no bathroom in their house. They would have had a jaw box, a sink in the kitchen, and the toilet would be out in the yard. And they would go down to Templemore Avenue baths or Ormo baths or Falls baths And there would have been the swimming pool, of course, for public relaxation, but there would have been a little side room, quite a big side room in Templemore Avenue, and it would have been sectioned off into little little booths where you could take a bath, literally in a bathtub. It was interesting because the cold water was allowed, you could pour in the cold water from inside the little, little booth, but the attendant controlled the hot water from outside the booth. So you only got so much hot water. And after that, you're on your own. You're cold. And that made sure you didn't lie in the bath too long, for the next person would be queuing up to get into it. That's the way it was up until the Second World War. I can remember well myself being born in the 50s, living in a cottage in Ligonil. And we had an outside toilet. And the bath night was Saturday night. And there was a metal tub placed in front of the fire. And the baby was the last one in, and that was me. So that's nothing unusual. The difference with Greek society was that the baths had no changing facilities. So you came along to the bath, and you took your clothes off, and you get into the bath, and it would have been not individual little tubs, but it would have been a communal bath. And you can see pictures of these communal baths on the internet. 
and you would have got in and you would have left your clothes sitting at the side and while you were in the baths you might have met with friends you would have talked you would have done business in the baths and certainly there were improper and immoral sexual liaisons took place in the baths but all this activity would be going on and no one would be watching their belongings and the result of that was that people simply walked in picked up a bundle of clothes took it out and sold it down in the marketplace. Easy pickings. And then, of course, there was the tourist trade. Ephesus was uh, a place for tourism. There was a pagan temple there, and prostitution took place all the time, day and night, wandering about the streets in the crowds in the narrow, unfamiliar streets of Ephesus. Pickpockets, smugglers were everywhere. And so, for many, thieves, thieving, stealing, was just simply a way of life. Thieves do nothing for society. Thieves of any kind. They just take what other people have worked for, don't they? You've worked for something. You've saved it up. Maybe you've bought yourself a nice car. And you come back to your parking place and you find some thief has taken your car. How do you feel? Theft is a crime. Theft destroys other people's well-being, making money or gaining advantage at the expense of someone else's labour and someone else's hard work. And I don't just mean shoplifting by theft or car theft. A wider definition of theft might include those who are benefits fraudsters, people who think that unmarried motherhood is a great career option when they're leaving school. People who have contributed nothing to society, either financially or in terms of responsibility. People who have never worked a day in their life and yet expect all the largesse of the welfare state to be lavished upon them. People who are illegal economic migrants who have paid handsomely to a people trafficker to put them on a boat and bring them across the sea so that they can get put up in a hotel and enjoy all the welfare benefits of the state, health care, tourists, regardless of where they have travelled from. Theft is a sin. Theft brings the thief under the severe wrath of God. God's law is blunt thou shalt not steal you shall not take other people's money that you have not worked for you shall not take other people's possessions now here's the thing some of these professional thieves working in Ephesus and playing their dishonest trade Some of these worthless, work-shy skivers in society had heard the gospel. And they had come to faith in Christ. And they had been wonderfully saved by God's grace. And Paul explains the extent of that grace in the life of a sinner in 1 Corinthians chapter ter- chapter 6 turn with it please turn with me please to that chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 talking to other Greeks but the same situation applies 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 
Our verse, let's start from verse 9, actually, so we get the context. So 1 Corinthians 6 and 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. You see, a thief, a thief can't get into heaven. Neither can a liar, or an idolater, or an adulterer, or a homosexual, or a covetous person or a drunkard, or a reviler. None of these people can get into heaven on their own merit. Then in verse 11, And such were some of you. But ye are washed, and ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. These People who could never get to heaven on their own. These thieves, these thieves were born again. They'd heard the wonderful good news that Christ saved sinners right to the very dregs of society, right down into the depths. Every one of us is included somewhere in that list. The Lord Jesus died for sinners. And the person who is a thief by profession, thieves no more. You don't see a man going into a shop and he gets caught by the police for shoplifting and he says to the shoplifter, I'm a Christian shoplifter. It's the way God made me. I can't change myself. Not at all. When God saves sinners, he gives them a new heart. He gives them a new life. They're different from the rest of society. And Paul says, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Those of you who were liars, stop lying. Those of you who were people who were always raging, stop it. And those of you who were dishonest, now is the time to be honest with the help of God. You're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast with Bob McAvoy. Look at this new man. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor. This converted thief with a new life in Christ is to stop stealing. This idle, factless scrounger, playing upon those who are earning, preying upon those who are earning an honest living, he must get a job. He must work diligently. He must earn his own living. There's a valid principle that's stated by Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and 10 that if a man shall not work, neither shall he eat. He says, for we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them 
that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. A very good reason for Paul to say that. Works are creation ordinance. When God created man and woman, he placed them in a garden. He placed them there as a married couple. He established the marriage of one man and one woman in a lifelong faithful relationship exclusive of all others as the divinely ordained lifestyle for all of mankind. But he also ordained in the Garden of Eden that Adam should work. Genesis 2 and 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to dress it and to keep it. Right from the very beginning, we were made to labor with our hands in such a way that God is glorified in our labor. And that especially applies to Christians. So a Christian is to earn his living. When we were, when we were living in the town of Megabry, a few years back, back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, I had a phone call one day. I was sitting in the study and the phone rang and it turned out that it was the would-be pastor of an extremely charismatic, extreme Pentecostal group here in Northern Ireland. And after a few moments of small talk, he wanted to know how I, as he put it, sustain my ministry. I said, what do you mean? Well, how do you get money out of people? <laughs> what? Well, you must have techniques. You know, you must have techniques to encourage people to sow financial seeds into the Lord's work so that they can materially prosper and you can prosper materially as well. So I heard this man. And I thought about it for a minute. And I said, do you want to do what I do so that you can materially prosper. And he says, yeah, what way do you do it? I says, you go and get a job. It wasn't what he wanted to hear. I go and get yourself a job. Do some honest work. The Lord will bless you. Christian must work with his hands, must actually do something to earn a living. And it's to be diligent labor, diligently working with your hands. That may not literally, of course, nowadays be applicable to everyone. I mean, we certainly admire great artisanship. Don't we get great craftsmanship? Where would we be without builders and, and joiners and electricians and plumbers and engineers and farmers and papers and decorators and street cleaners and bin men? Where would we be without those people? We also need doctors. We need nurses. We need teachers. We need lawyers. We need police officers. We need artists and musicians. I'm not sure that we need politicians, mind you. We might even need pastors. Where would we be without people at work, working with your hands today? might involve good keyboard skills, just as much as being able to make a lovely building or a beautiful wall out of a pile of bricks. Paul tells us in Colossians 3 and 23, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, 
when you go to work tomorrow, whatever that work might be, whisper a prayer. Lord, help me to do this work for you. It's my vocation. What about homemaking? You know, sometimes um, speaking to someone who's recently lost, lost a loved one, I, I'll say to them, um, what did your mother or your grandmother or your sister, what did she do for a living? And the answer will come back, oh, well, she was just a housewife. And I get a bit annoyed about that, and I tend to react to it a wee bit, and I usually challenge it, and I usually say, she wasn't just a housewife. She was a homemaker. She was a wife. She was a mother. One of the greatest and most God-honoring vocations that a woman can ever engage in is to be a mother, to be a wife, to be a homemaker. It was a mother. It was a woman who rocked the cradle of the incarnate Son of God that men would call blessed. It was a woman who nurtured him. It was a woman who fed him. It was a woman who ministered to him when he was a helpless baby. What a blessing to humanity it is to have women who are just housewives and who serve the Lord by ministering to their family. If you haven't read Proverbs 31, you should read it when you go home. It's the passage about the woman who is blessed, a good wife, a virtuous woman. Proverbs 31 and 27 says she looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. Christian must work diligently, and a Christian must work ethically. Look at the verse again. Verse 28, let him that stole, stole no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good. The thing which is good. Christians work ethically. When a Christian labors, it must be for that which is good. So good for himself, yes. Good for his neighbors, good for God's kingdom, good for others. It's obvious that if what we do is to bring glory to God, then theft is excluded. Then living in a way that we extract money from other people when we don't deserve it is excluded. Working with your own hands cannot include, for example, what is now euphemistically referred to as sex workers, formerly known as prostitution, or working in a clinic that involves the murder of unborn children. How could a Christian ever be involved in that? I'm sure you can think of other forms of work that are unsuitable for a Christian believer who is to be different, to stand out from the pagan world. And one last we thought, Let's go back to the verse again, verse 28. And Paul finishes with this admonition, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Now that's the balance to it, isn't it? I've already said that God's purpose for everyone is that we are not to be idle, that we're not to live off the work of others like the Ephesian thieving pagans did. But we're to labor to earn our own wages. But there is another dimension to this. 
And it is that the purpose of our labor ultimately is not personal enrichment. That's the way of the world, and we're not to be like the world. The way of the world is to get rich so that we can enjoy our riches. The way of the world is personal advancement, promotion, a better job, a better car, a better house, all of those things. Three or four holidays a year, a fantastic pension plan. That's the way of the world. The Christian labors so that he can do good to others. It's so that we can help others in need. It's so that we can deal with those and help those who genuinely cannot work. Let's go back to the early church for a moment. And let's think about the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. What was happening there? Widows in the time of the early church had no form of welfare. No one looked after them. A widow had to beg, find bread. The church wasn't to do that. Christians are to be different from the world. So they're to look after their widows. They're to supply them with food and sustenance. They're to give them places to live. A widow is to be looked after. Similarly, those who could no longer look after themselves because they were disabled. They were to be looked after. And so the deacons, the very first deacons, were elected for the very purpose of administering the church's funds of relief to those who were without support. And we still have that responsibility. James chapter 1 and verse 27 tells us that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. It is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So while we've said earlier that we're not to give credence to those who are simply spongers of society, we have to recognize that there are those who cannot work and we have a responsibility as believers. And Paul is being extremely balanced here. If uh, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. Yet Christians, in verse 28, work that we may give to him that needs. Could be because of disability or old age. Modern days, people need our help because they can't work due to infirmity. We are therefore to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6 and 2. It is our duty to help those in need. There might be those who are reluctantly unemployed, a person who loses his or her job through no fault of their own. An employer dismisses them. A company fails. Conditions of labor make it no longer possible for them to continue. And it may be then that we are to step in and to help. Leviticus 25 and 35 says, if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. And of course, 
we also say and we have to say that we support those who are genuinely fleeing the effects of war, not the factless economic pillagers I was talking about earlier, but those who are in need of help, who are fleeing from war-torn places, running away from conflict, fleeing from death, not of their own making. Those who are demonstrably innocent. Matthew 25 and 35, Jesus himself said, I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. So Christians work because we are different from the rest of society. We work, and we do our work unto the Lord, and we do that work not so that we may personally enrich ourselves, but so that we may be a blessing to others. Let's think about our taxes for a moment, because nobody likes paying tax. Our taxes and our national insurance contributions nowadays ought to pay for these special situations where people need help. We could argue that the government greatly misuses our taxes. We could argue that the government frequently squanders the money that rightfully belongs to us. We don't need to look for examples. They're prolific. They're very well documented. Nobody wants to pay tax. But for the Christian, the general principle is that we work so that we can contribute overall to society. Paul in Romans 13 Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but for conscience' sake, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they, the government, are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Maybe that might make our tax burden even seem a little bit lighter if we adopt that attitude. And if we're concerned by how the government misuses the funds that it takes from us, then that's a matter for political campaigning. And it won't do us any harm to go beyond our statutory duty and give to worthy charities and causes. So we started off talking about theft. But under the heading of theft is honesty. Honest labour. And why we labour. And how that labour is applied. The specific application of the general principle that Christians should be different from the world. And Paul deals with the believer's whole attitude to economics, to work and to money, to the purpose of our work, And all of that should reflect a Christian view that is hugely different. Christian lifestyle that is the very opposite of the greedy, self-centered attitudes to money that prevail in pagan society. Christian economic activity is framed in terms of what our Fruitful, God-pleasing labor allows us to do for others. Proverbs 19 and 17. 
He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.